The reading is Genesis chapter 44. Now Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of his house. Fill the men's sacks with as much food as they can carry, and put each man's silver in the mouth of his sack. Then put my cup, the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest one's sack, along with the silver for his grain. And he did as Joseph said. As morning dawned, the men were sent on their way with their donkeys. They had not got far from the city when Joseph said to his steward, Go after those men at once, and when you catch up with them, say to them, Why have you repaid good with evil? Isn't this the cup my master drinks from and also uses for divination? This is a wicked thing you have done. When he caught up with them, he repeated these words to them. But they said to him, Why does my Lord say such things? Far be it from your servants to do anything like that. We even brought back to you from the land of Canaan the silver we found inside the mouths of our sacks. So why would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If any of your servant is found to have it, he will die, and the rest of us will become my lord's slaves. Very well then, he said, let it be as you say. Whoever is found to have it will become my slave. The rest of you will be free from blame. Each of them quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. Then the steward proceeded to search, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. At this, they tore their clothes. Then they all loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in, and they threw themselves to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, What is this you have done? Don't you know that a man like me can find things out by divination? What can we say to my Lord? Judah replied. What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now my Lord's slaves. We ourselves and the one who was found to have this cup. But Joseph said, far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who was found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you go back to your father in peace. This is God's word. What do you do, if and when, what do you do when you get bored of Jesus' death and resurrection? What do you do when you get bored? Now, I'm sure here this evening there'll be some who you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, and you say, well, frankly, that's not my issue. Uh, I've never been particularly excited by them. I'm not quite clear what all the fuss is. Uh, if that's you, it is fantastic to have you here this evening. I hope you feel very welcome. I hope you get to meet people around you uh, who can explain some of what the fuss is. And this is a brilliant evening for you to be here, because we're talking this evening in Jesus' death and resurrection about things that are central to the Christian faith and the Christian message. It's a brilliant evening for you to be here. But I'm mainly thinking, uh, for those of us here who'd call ourselves Christians, what do you do when you get bored of Jesus' death and resurrection? We know that it is at the centre of the Bible, of the Christian faith. We know, the book of Revelation tells us, that for all eternity, the thing that we'll sing about is that Jesus died and rose again. That's what it says. And yet in those days, or the weeks, or the months, when... We sing the songs and they leave us cold. Or we're in the discussion in our small group, in our Bible study, and just disengaged. Because the things we know about Jesus' death and resurrection seem to have have left us cold. We're bored of them. What do you do? Well, one tempting thing, which is not the right answer, will never be the right answer, is to move on 
from Jesus' death and resurrection. I think maybe at other places in the Christian faith, maybe there are other things that are more exciting. Maybe there's a new thing. Let me go on the internet, see what's happening, what God's doing in the world now, something new that will be more exciting. That's never going to be the solution. But the solution might be not to move on, but to move sideways. To look at the same death and resurrection of Jesus, but to look from a different angle, to step to the side and see from a different angle something new, to see another facet of it, another blessing that comes to us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this evening, really, that's what we're going to do. As we pick up again the story of Joseph, we're going to have a chance to step sideways, to look at Jesus' death and resurrection from a different angle, from the angle that these chapters of Genesis give us. And we'll see something that you wouldn't see if these weren't here in the Bible. Now, it's worth saying, that's an approach that's endorsed by Jesus. We had uh, Becca read for us earlier, Luke 24, where Jesus says, in the scriptures, beginning with Moses, who wrote the book of Genesis, beginning with Moses, they tell you about my death and resurrection. It's not a New Testament idea. From the very beginning, it's one of the reasons the Bible's so long, the Old Testament's so long, is because we need picture after picture after picture after picture of Jesus and his death and his resurrection. No one picture can give us the whole thing. No one picture would be enough to sustain us in our praise for all eternity. But the Bible's so long because we need picture after picture. And so the Old Testament, Jesus tells us, we'll learn about his death and resurrection. Someone this week helped me by thinking in the Old Testament there are patterns that Jesus will echo. There are problems that Jesus will solve. There are promises that Jesus will keep. And this evening's passage, we're really seeing two patterns, two pictures of Jesus. Kind of one of his death, one of his resurrection. And I hope it would be our prayer as we do that, just like Jesus' disciples in Luke 24, that as we see Jesus in the scriptures, our hearts would burn. We'd see something from a slightly different angle and say, yes, that is why the death and resurrection of Jesus is not something to move on from. They never will be. So say we're here in the story of Joseph. Becca read the first bit of our passage for tonight. Uh, it's a story we've been in for a few weeks. This is the penultimate week, so last uh, next week we'll finish the story. And the story of Joseph, it works on two levels. There's the human level, and there's God's level. And in the story, the two never seem to meet. You know, some stories in the Bible, there's dramatic miracles, there's angels bringing messages. The, the God level and the human level seem to meet all the time. In this story, they don't. They seem to travel along entirely separately. But... But the, the, the big message, really, of the book of Joseph is that God is at work, the story of Joseph, is that God is at work in the human story, through the human story, which seems very ordinary, very normal, very coincidental. God is at work to save lives. But the human story is what gets most of the focus, like in the rest of life. It's what we see most clearly. And the human story so far, the 11 remaining sons of Jacob... They're living in Canaan where there's famine, as there is in the whole world at this time. And they hear there's food in Egypt. And so the 11 of them trot off to Egypt, and uh, they come before the prime minister of Egypt and ask for food, little knowing that it's Joseph, the 12th of the brothers, the one that 20 years ago they sold as a slave to Egypt. God has put in that position, prime minister over Egypt. And now there they are before him, asking for food. 
Now, Becca read the beginning of uh, chapter 44, which kind of sets up the story for tonight. And Joseph, in that bit, has the brothers exactly where he wants them all along. So the youngest brother, Benjamin, he's on his way to an Egyptian prison, and the rest are given an offer. You can go home with the silver, you're free. Joseph has recreated almost exactly the situation of chapter 37, where the brothers sold him as a slave, they took the silver and ran home. Joseph's put them back. He wants to see, have they changed? And you might not like the way God has written the story of Joseph, the things he's put them through. They didn't like most of it at the time. You might not like the way God is writing at the moment your story, the things that are going on. But you have to admit here, even in what Becca just read, that God knew what he was doing. In chapter 37, the brothers watched their, their brother be sent off to Egypt. They went home with the silver. They watched their father tear his clothes in grief over what they'd done to him, but they didn't admit it. Here, verse 13, they tear their clothes all of them, as a man, they stand with Benjamin, they go with him to Egypt and say, we're with him. God knew what he was doing. God has changed this family. Now that's a setup for the story tonight. But tonight, the meat isn't in the story. The meat is in the two speeches. See, these two chapters are dominated by two massive speeches. So Judah in chapter 44 has the longest speech in the book of Genesis. And then Joseph in chapter 45 has a pretty long one as well. So at this crucial moment in the story, the narrator, who we've seen earlier, he can skip over 10 years in a single sentence when he wants to. Here, he slows right down. He lets us in on every word that Judah and Joseph say. This is where we're meant to focus in these chapters. So that's where we're going to focus as well. We're going to focus on these two speeches, Judah and Joseph. So the first one, uh, Judah in chapter 44, let your servant remain here. Let me remain here, your servant, and let the boy return. I'm going to read that speech. It's there in verse 18. If you've let the Bible close, it's on page 50. Uh, from verse 18, Judah's speech. Then Judah went up to him, to Joseph, and said, Please, my Lord, let your servant speak a word to my Lord. Do not be angry with your servant, though you're equal to Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, Do you have a father or a brother? And we answered, we have an aged father. There's a young son born to him in his old age. His brother's dead and he's the only one left of his mother's sons and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me so I can see him for myself. And we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father. If he leaves him, his father will die. But you told your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him what my Lord had said. Then our father said, go back and buy us a little more food. But we said, we cannot go down. Only if our youngest brother is with us will we go. We cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me and I said, he's surely been torn to pieces. And I've not seen him since. If you take this one from me too and harm comes to him, you'll bring my grey head down to the grave in misery. So now, if the boy is not with us when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the grey head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. 
Now then, please, let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy, and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy's not with me? Do not let me see the misery that would come upon my father. That is the longest single speech in the book of Genesis. And you read it, and I imagine some would ask, but why? I mean, it's only the last two verses that tell us anything new. Those two verses where Judah says, here's my plan, let me stay here in prison so that the brother who's in prison can go home instead. That's what's new. All the rest, Judah's just retelling the story that we've been looking at over the last few weeks. If what the narrator had wanted to do was just give us the information that we need, all of this virtually could have been left on the cutting room floor and we just jumped to the last paragraph. But I hope you heard as we read, the narrator's interested in far more than just the information. He wants us to get the emotion of this scene. This speech is all about emotion. I hope you heard it. This is a man who loves his father, who is broken-hearted at the idea that grief would come to his dad, and who'll do anything to stop that happening. This isn't a guy who makes the offer to swap places with Benjamin because he's always secretly liked Benjamin, or because he thinks it's the right thing to do, or because of even past guilt from what he did to Joseph. This is a man who loves his father and would do anything for him. You see that from the speech, just in the words that are repeated. Fourteen times in these 17 verses, you get the word father. The NIV doesn't even translate them all. So verse 22 literally says, And we said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father. If he leaves his father, his father will die. You can see why they left some out. You don't need them all. But the point is, this is a man who can't stop talking about his father. He loves his dad. And he said as well in the additions, the things that they never said that Judas says they said. So verse 20, we answered, we have an aged father, there's a young son born to him in his old age, his brother is dead, he's the only one of his mother's sons left, and his father loves him. That bit, and his father loves him, they never said in chapter 42. Or again in verse 22, we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, if he leaves him, his father will die. They never said that in chapter 42. But as Judah looks over the story of the last few months, as he retells it, as he interprets it, he sees it as a story of Jacob who loves his son Benjamin. And far from being jealous of that as he once was, he's going to love his father so much that he says, if my father loves Benjamin with that sort of love, I'll do anything to get Benjamin home to him. And so because of Judah's love for his father, He says, let me stay here instead. Let him go home. Let me take his place in prison. Now, we said these chapters are pictures of Jesus' death and resurrection. If you've read the New Testament, it's fairly obvious to see that is a picture. Judah's offer is a picture of Jesus' offer. That as Judas offers to stand in Benjamin's place, we need Jesus to stand in our place, to die our death on the cross, to have our sins punished in him so that they can be forgiven in us. So verses 33 to 34 are clearly a picture of Jesus standing in our place at the cross. But what about the rest of it? What about the rest of this speech? Where Judah knows and Judah accepts that Jacob wants Benjamin back more than him. Where Judah, out of love for his father, stands in the place of his brother. Could we say there's a picture of Jesus there? Something like this, that Jesus knew that God his Father has a love for us so deep and so intense 
that to use the words of this speech, misery and sorrow, it would cause God more misery and sorrow for us to die than for Jesus. That God could look at Jesus, his eternal son, his image, and say, there'd be more sorrow for me if they died than if he died. Now, I don't know about you, for me, I don't think I would dare to say that except... I think it's what Jesus says. So off on the screen, we've got John chapter 10. Uh, Here we go, John chapter 10 verse 17. Jesus speaking, the reason my father loves me is... Now I'm sure if we didn't have it up there, you could guess all sorts of ways of ending that sentence. The reason my father loves me is because I'm good, because I'm pure, because I'm powerful, because I'm wise, because I'm lovely, because I've been with him for all eternity. But no, Jesus says, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life. My father loves me because I give my life in the place of other people. Now look, of course, you could take this kind of line too far. All the things I just said are reasons that God loves Jesus and that the church loves him as well. But you don't want to miss what this verse is saying. The reason the father loves me is that I lay down my life. It's something like this. God's love for us is so deep that part of what he loves about Jesus is that Jesus brings us back to him. That in heaven, if Jesus had come back empty-handed, if it were, as it were, if it was just Jesus who came back, there would have been sorrow in heaven to receive Jesus back by himself. But when Jesus, from his death and resurrection, from his victory, comes back with us on his shoulder, God the Father runs to him and says, that is why I love you, because you brought them back to me. Jesus really is the true and better Judah who knew that his father would rather spare us from punishment, from eternal imprisonment, than spare Jesus. And so because of his love for his father, he walks willingly to the cross. He says, not my will be done, but yours. Jesus is the true and better Judah who says, let the brother go home, let me remain in his place. Okay, what difference does it make? What difference does it make seeing the cross from that angle? I think two things is a lot, but let's say two. First, I think it helps us to completely throw out the caricature that you get banded around every now and then of the cross, that it's a horrible, angry, mean God who has to be calmed down by nice Jesus who comes along and says, there, 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 let's come up with another way of doing this. You hear that every now and then. I think this blows it out of the water. Because the cross, Jesus' death for us, comes from, is rooted in the love of the Father for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. If the cross of Jesus makes us think of God as ugly and aggressive, we need to look again and pray again that we would see his love for us there. That's one thing. Second thing is this. I think it gives us an astonishing and a completely rock-solid confidence and security in God's love for us. Benjamin, at this point in the story, he's still a young man. We don't know exactly how old, but let's imagine he's a teenager. And uh, imagine a few days in the future, because he does end up going home. Good news, I've ruined the end of the story. Uh, He's back home, and he has one of those days that teenagers have. Uh, Dad, this is so unfair. No one understands me. Everyone hates me. Everyone's out to get me. 
And then he thinks back to that day in a dark prison cell in Egypt when he heard through the grill his brother speaking. He heard the words of verse 34. How can I go back to my father if the boy's not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come upon my father. If you're a Christian here, Jesus, for you, that he chose for harm to come to Jesus instead of for it to come to you. And so then can you imagine, on your teenage rebellion days, everyone hates me. Can you imagine that there's anything that God knows that you need for your good that he won't give you because it would just cost him too much? You can know that Jesus' love for his father is so deep and so intense that he went through with this plan, that even on the way to the cross, he was thinking of the joy of seeing the beam on his father's face when you walked into heaven. And can you imagine, on your worst days, that there's anything that he wouldn't then do for you, that there's anything that he knows that you need for your good, but he would say, no, that's too difficult, that's too much. Jesus is the true and better Judah, who out of love for his father stands in the place of his church. That's chapter 44, looking at Judah. Joseph, then, is the focus of chapter 45. So it comes around, uh, Joseph, who says, in summary, really, God sent me ahead of you to save your lives. Let's pick it up. Let's pick up the story at verse 1 of chapter 45. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Make everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers, and he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph, is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Which is not surprising, is it? I mean, it was bad enough. Here they are before the Prime Minister of Egypt who thinks one of their brothers has stolen his magic silver cup and they're in a lot of trouble and suddenly, oh, good news. It's Joseph. It's the one who 20 years ago we sold and we've never thought of since. Okay, they're terrified. They're not speaking. But this chapter is dominated by Joseph's speech and listen to it from verse 4 as he sets to comforting them. So verse 4, then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they'd done so, he said, I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been famine in the land. And for the next five years, I'll not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children, your grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have, I'll provide for you there. Because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you would become destitute. You can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that it really is I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honour accorded me in Egypt, and about everything you've seen. And bring my father down here quickly. When you think about that speech under the two uh, sections of the heading, God sent me to save your lives. So first, God sent me. 
Did you hear that as we read it? Joseph is insistent. That just down the end of verse 5. Uh, it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Verse 7. But God sent me ahead of you. Verse 8. Is the strongest probably. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. And you read that if you've read the story and think, Joe, what are you thinking? What are you saying? Do you not remember your childhood? That they hated you? That they wanted to kill you? That they, the only reason you're still alive is because they saw some slave traders coming by and thought we can make a quick buck? Don't you remember? They sent you to Egypt, but no. Joseph says, God sent me. She said every week, looking at this story, that the big lesson for us of the book of Joseph is that as it gets put later in the Bible, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose, in all things. And it's not just because we've made it up, that that's, that's a good theme for a story. It's because here, when Joseph explains the story, when he recounts it, when he interprets it, and again in chapter 50, when he does the same thing, that's what he says the story's about. In all things, God has been at work. In the good things and the bad. In the well-intentioned and the evil. So a few weeks ago, one of the things I get to do here on a Sunday morning is look after the children. And a few weeks ago, we were looking at the story of Joseph, or we have just chapter. And we had, from the previous weeks, a big timeline of the things that had happened in the story of Joseph. And uh, we got the kids to go through with a green stick of a good and a red stick of a bad and stick on the timeline the things that were good and the things that were bad. And he got lots of both. You know, so green stick is he gets a beautiful coat. We like that, especially the girls. Uh, he's doing well when he's in Potiphar's house. He's successful. He's impressive. He meets the cupbearer on a Pharaoh's officials. It's useful uh, networking. He becomes the prime minister. Good. Lots of green stickers over the story of Joseph. But a lot of red ones as well. The brothers are jealous of him. They hate him. They sell him as a slave. He ends up in prison. The cupbearer, Pharaoh's butler, goes back to Pharaoh and completely forgets all about him for another two years. And there's a famine. Plenty of green stickers, plenty of red stickers all the way through the story. But Joseph says that you need another set of stickers. For God did it. Now, God doesn't have a colour, we used yellow, because that's what we had. That's a yellow sticker is going all the way through that story by every red sticker, by every green sticker. The coat, that was God. Success in Potiphar's house, that was God. The famine, that was God. Imprisonment, that was God. Being sold as a slave. Verse 8 here, it was not you who sent me here, but God. At every point in the story, Joseph says it was God. God who sent me here, God who's put me here in this position. You sold me, yes, but God sent me. God did it. This is not just, you caused a bit of a mess, but God, he's a bit clever, and he turned it around and made something good of it. No, from the very beginning, he sent me. This was his plan from day one. Now, next week, when we look at chapter 50, the second time when Joseph says this, we're going to have more time to think about some of the big questions that we have about that. How can you say that? What's going on? What does that mean about? We'll have more time on that next week. But for now, just notice in verse 5, one implication of this that Joseph raises. So verse 5, And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Do not be angry or distressed with yourselves. So Joseph doesn't hide or cover or ignore their guilt. You sold me. He's clear on that. But 
But he says they can be not distressed or angry about what they did. And the same stands for us. Just think for a minute. I'm not going to ask you to tell anyone, but just think for a minute. What is the worst mistake that you've made? If it could be like the brothers because of sin, it could be an accident. Uh, Maybe something that's hurt people around you. Maybe something that has consequences that's still around today. It may be something for some reason you're reminded of pretty regularly or you haven't thought of for quite a while. What's the biggest mistake that you've made? And as you think about that, just listen again, as the brothers would have done, to verse 5. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Or imagine Joseph saying the words to you, and now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourself for whatever it is you're thinking about, because it was for good that God did it. Just a bit. Now I wonder, does that feel to you like it does to me? Just a bit too easy, a bit too glib. I wouldn't be surprised actually if that's what the brothers felt. What do you mean? Don't, don't be angry. It is worth saying, of course, that it might be those words aren't for you at the moment. So the brothers didn't get these words back in chapter 37. As they were throwing him in the pit, as they were selling him to Egypt, they didn't get these words. But later, once they've acknowledged their guilt, once they've repented, turned, once they've changed, Joseph says, you don't need to beat yourself up about that anymore. Don't be distressed. Don't be angry with yourselves because God did it and he did it for good. And so for us, if we have, whatever it is you're thinking about, if we've confessed sin that we need to confess to God and to those involved, if we've changed patterns of behavior, if we've restored things that we need to restore, made amends, and if, as Joseph's learned in this story, God really does have the past and the future in his hands, then there is... There's a deep well to find peace over what we've done in the past. Whatever it is, however big the red sticker next to that event, there is a yellow sticker by it. I don't know what good God planned from it. You may never know. But you can say God planned that and he did it for good. And so do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourself. Deep resources there, a deep well, not just for not being angry with yourself, but with others as well. Just look across the page, verse 24. Uh, Verse 24. A little bit later as he sends them home, then he sent his brothers away and as they were leaving, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. Joseph is an idiot. He knows what's going to happen as soon as he leaves the room. The bickering starts. Yeah, if you'd never thrown him in the pit, we wouldn't be in this mess to start with. Yeah, but it wasn't me who said, let's kill him. What were you thinking? Yeah, but that was only ever a joke. You said sell him as a slave and you meant it. What? Don't quarrel on the way home. Know that God did it, that he meant good. And there's a deep well to forgive and not to be angry with ourselves. If it is true that God has a grip on the past and the future, it's easier for us to let go of our grip not to be angry with ourselves and not to quarrel, not to blame each other. Now look, there are questions there 
Uh, of course, we could talk more about this later. We'll talk a lot more about this next week. Uh, but for now, uh, see that the implication that Joseph draws, don't be distressed, don't be angry with yourselves, don't quarrel with others when God has been at work and he's done it for good. God sent me here, secondly, to save your lives. He sent me here to save your lives. Now, of course, by sending Joseph to Egypt, God saved way more than their lives. All of Egypt, the surrounding countries, would have died in the famine. Thousands would have done. But the focus here, particularly in verse 7, is much narrower than that. Verse 7, But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. God organized and he perfectly timed dreams and slave traders and a jealous woman and the location of a prison cell and a forgetful butler and Egyptian cabinet appointments and agricultural and trade policy all to look after this family. Now in the first instance, that's because this is the family of the promise of blessings for all nations. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, way back at the beginning of the Bible, God promised that one son of Eve... Through one son of Eve, there'd be deliverance, there'd be blessing, there'd be rescue from the ruin and curse of the world that we know. And by this point in the story, we know that that promise has come down to Israel, to Jacob and his family. One of their sons will be the one who will restore the world. And so if this family dies, as they should have done in Canaan, this small, seemingly insignificant family, the promise is snuffed out. There's no rescue, there's no deliverance, there's no line of the tribe of Judah who'd stand in the place of his church. The Bible ends at Genesis 37. So in the first instance, all of this hassle to look after this family is because they're the family of promise, of blessing for all nations. This is the extraordinary length that God will go to to save his people and keep his word. But there is more going on here than that. You see, if all God needed to do was keep this family alive, it would have been a lot easier. You could tip anyone in Egypt off to the famine, you could have them gather some food, and any mid-ranking Egyptian official will do. They just need to, the brothers need to come, some mid-ranking official, yes, you can have some food, off you go home, well done. It would have been a lot simpler, the story would have been a lot shorter. But they don't come to meet a mid-ranking Egyptian official. Because their brother is the prime minister of Egypt, the lord of all the land, They go home with blessing after blessing after blessing poured on them. Just look down. We'll read from verse 16. Just see the scope of this. When the news reached Pharaoh's palace that Joseph's brothers had come, Pharaoh and all his officials were pleased. Pharaoh said to Joseph, tell your brothers, do this. Load your animals and return to the land of Canaan and bring your father and your families back to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you can enjoy the fat of the land. You're also directed to tell them to do this. Take some carts from Egypt for your children and your wives and get your father and come. Never mind about your belongings because the best of all of Egypt will be yours. So the sons of Israel did this. Joseph gave them carts as Pharaoh had commanded. He also gave them provisions for their journey. To each of them he gave new clothing, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five sets of clothes. And this is what he sent to his father. Ten donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and other provisions for the journey. The best things of Egypt are theirs because their brother is running the show. And here again is a picture for us of Jesus, a picture mainly of his resurrection, his return to heaven for us. I wonder, do you think of yourself, often I don't, think of yourself as living in the middle of a spiritual famine? 
If you're a Christian, I imagine you're quite used to thinking of yourself as a sinner who needs God's forgiveness. But what about a starving man or woman who needs food? See, the Bible later says in Isaiah, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come and buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. It's a picture the Bible uses over and over again. It's not talking about a literal famine. We know that because the next verse says, Listen, listen to me and eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Hear me, that your soul may live. It's a spiritual famine the Bible talks about over and over again that's overcome by the word of God, by listening, by hearing, by giving ear to what God says. And so the images that you see on the TV of famine, when you see it around the world and it's on our news, the, the bony arms, the bloated bellies, the buzzing flies in the scorched fields, that is our state spiritually. That we hunger, we thirst for life, for meaning, for satisfaction, security, joy, for hope. And the world offers us candy floss and lettuce and Cheetos, things that they seem to dull the ache for a little while, but they, they pass through and do no good. They don't do anything about the problem. The Bible addresses us as thirsty and as hungry. The Bible expects that there'll be men and women here who feel that spiritually, a longing, a thirst, a hunger. And if that's you, then as Isaiah says, as Genesis says, would you come to Jesus, who isn't a mid-ranking official who'll give you precisely what you need. He just dispenses vitamin tablets that have precisely the nutrition you need to get you to heaven. He is the Lord of all the land. He is the bread of life, John 6. He has the waters of eternal life, John 7. He's been sent to heaven to open its storehouses and to pour on his people blessing and abundance. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who was sent by God into the land of plenty and who opens the granaries and feeds his church a feast. Jesus is the true and better Judah. Jesus is the true and better Joseph. When you're bored of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We don't move on. We don't need to go somewhere else. But sometimes it helps to move sideways, to have a look from a different angle. And then maybe uh, this will be our response. Just look down, the very end. We'll finish here. Verse 25, how this section of the story ends. So they, the brothers, went up out of Egypt and came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. They told him, Joseph is still alive. In fact, he is ruler of all of Egypt. Jacob was stunned. He did not believe them. But when they told him everything Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts Joseph had sent to carry him back, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, I'm convinced. My son Joseph is still alive. I'll go and see him before I die. The brothers report, verse 26, Joseph is still alive. Jacob's confidence, verse 28, I will see him before I die. They don't care about the best of all the land of Egypt at the moment. They don't care about the donkeys and the grain and the nuts and the honey and whatever it is that's come back. Joseph is alive. I will see Joseph before I die. And for us, for those who are Christians, 
the prayer is that as we see Jesus, as we see his death and resurrection, as we see it from angle after angle after angle after angle that the Bible gives us, we say, it is enough. I don't need to move anywhere else. He is all I need. He is all I want. And I will see him. Should we pray together? Our Father, we praise you that you know our weakness, our folly, our foibles. You know that we drift, we change, we get bored, we need to be woken up. We praise you that you haven't just told us the truth in one way, but in hundreds. We praise you that Jesus is our Judah, who stands in our place, whose love for you and for us is unbreakable. We praise you that Jesus is our Joseph who has access to every blessing, everything we need, and says they're ours on a plate, the best of all the land of heaven. We praise you that he is ours. And please would you help us as we read the scriptures, as we encourage one another, to never move from him, but to love him, to know him, to follow him, to trust him. We ask in his name. Amen.